Amen. So hasn't it been a significant morning already? We've heard about Clive's vaulting on horses. Just to be clear, if you're not sure what he means, I'm very happy to show you sometime. Pretty easy. It's just how he describes it. And then we also had the baptism. Some of the children were quite concerned because I wasn't wearing swim shorts. I was wearing normal sports shorts. So a bit concerned about what I was wearing. But just to be clear, if any of them ask, the sports shorts were totally fine. I'm okay. It was a fantastic baptism. But... We're in a series looking at follow me. What does it mean for us to be leaders worth following? What does it mean for us to be leaders who are worthy of being imitated? Am I worth following? Are you worth following? What does it mean in this series of follow me to lead like Jesus, to be people of influence, people of godly influence, people who lead like Jesus, who model their lives on Jesus, who lead the Jesus way? And we're looking at this in Rooted on Sundays in our huddles, and we're just asking that question, Am I a leader worth following? Are you a leader worth following? How do we model our lives on Jesus? And the truth is, isn't it, if you want to change the world, if you want to change the society, if you want to change the city, our heart, our desire is to impact the city. And it's got to start with godly leadership. Because as the leader goes, the organization follows. If you look at almost any organization, it rests and hinges on good leadership. So when you have a problem with a sports club, what do they do? They, yes, they change their players. Yes, they change their systems. But ultimately, they look to the management. Organizations, businesses, charities, churches, everything, we rest on good and godly leadership. So what does it mean for us to lead the Jesus way? And a caveat, what I'm about to preach on is quite challenging, and it's not something I've particularly grasped. It's stretching me, and it's something I'm wrestling with as much as any of you will. It's challenging to me. So if what I'm going to say is... You know, something you've grasped and you've nailed it. And I don't know, maybe count how many light bulbs there are up there. I don't know. Because what I want to do is just stretch our leadership, stretch our image of what it means to lead the Jesus way. Because when I look at my life, when I look at my leadership, what I realize is that I can very easily be quite selfish. It can be quite self-centered leadership. And one of the main ways I've realized that is through parenting. I've got a two-year-old son called Tobin. And a few months ago, I went to the service station with him, and we went to the toilet. Don't worry, I'm not going to be too graphic, but we were in the toilet at the service station. And we walk up to the urinal, and he does that thing that all the kids that I've come across certainly do, where they go up and they grab the side of the urinal with both hands. Like a really disgusting habit. They go and grab the side of the urinal with both hands to get balance. So there I am trying to wipe down his hands and say, look, that's disgusting. Don't hold the side of the urinal. Don't do that. And then he does his business, he goes to the loo. But he also, as a lot of children do, he pulls down his pants and his trousers and he's just exposed and people are laughing and people are laughing at me as I try and pull his trousers back up. And there he is at the urinal and he's done his business, he's giggling away and I go there to pick up his trousers and his pants so he's back ready and finished. And what happens at that very moment as I'm bending down, the flush on the urinal goes. And I got a face full, a mouthful of that water probably the most disgusting thing I've ever experienced. It was revolting, right in my face. And I was like, thanks, Tobin, I really appreciated that. And just to add insult to injury, people around me were laughing. He had that kind of cute little two-year-old giggle, thinking it was hilarious, right in my face, disgusting. But in that moment, I wondered if I experienced leadership in all its glory, the Jesus way. Down on my knees, down in submission, down trying to help him. Thankless at times, often feeling about the fact that it's not about me, it's about him. And I don't get the praise perhaps that I felt I deserved. It's hard and it often just gets thrown back in our face. It's challenging to lead the Jesus way. 
It can be messy, it can be costly, it can be difficult, it can be hard, it can be sacrificial. But it's the Jesus way to lead like that. Serving others is costly, but it's the best way, it's the Jesus way. And when I look around this church, I love the fact that I so often see such humility and servant hearts modelled across this church. And what we're going to talk about, I see in so many of us, to lead the Jesus way. Last week, you may or may not know, but Kobe Bryant passed away. And Kobe Bryant was a very famous basketball player, a superstar. And he died tragically in a helicopter crash. And... What was interesting is he had an absolutely amazing career. For 20 years, he played for Los Angeles Lakers. He won Olympic medals. He won NBA championships. He got most valuable player awards, scoring awards. He was an absolute phenomenal athlete. And people who know their sports would rate him as one of the best all-time sports stars. And at the age of 17, when he joined the NBA, he said from the outset, my goal is to be the best basketball player ever. To be the best basketball player ever. Now, you can debate that all you want. Some of you don't particularly care. He was very good, probably not the best in my opinion. But he had a phenomenal career, hugely impactful career, really significant career. But what he said in an interview a few years ago before he passed away, he said, I suddenly realized that that goal to be the best ever was so self-centered, was so me-focused, was so selfish. I realized the impact my life and leadership could have on others. And I suddenly realized that what I needed to do was to use my God-given gifts for the glory of others, to make someone else's life better, to raise others up. At the end of his career, he realized that yes, he had gifts, yes, he had talents, but his desire was to help others, to raise others up. He realized the influence he had. You see, if you're anything like me, it can so easily become about me. It can so easily become about us. Sociologists have said that we've swung from a focus on community, the traditional community. So we used to have a focus where it's about living for others, and now we're focusing on the individual. It's called the self-absorption. Now, understand that these are sweeping statements. These are general comments from a sociology. They're not necessarily accurate or fully the picture, but they give us some sense of where we are as a culture. And The generation before, according to this sociologist, were about the community. And what happened with that is that your identity, your purpose, was to serve the community, to be a good dad, to be a good son, to be a good tradesman, to influence the common good of that community. You wanted to have self-denial to influence and positively impact others. So you got your worth, you got your value from other people being content and happy of what you were contributing. But what sociology is saying now is that we are in a self-absorption society where it becomes about us. Now, understand, neither one is extremely good or extremely bad. Of course, there's strengths and weaknesses to both. But in a self-absorption society, we get our identity from within, from within ourselves, from self-expression. And they say that it's from stories, songs, and slogans. Not textbooks, not what we hear, but stories, songs, and slogans. So the story is what we hear in media, what we perceive in the world around us, the subtle subliminal messages we read around us. Songs, the lyrics we hear, the lyrics that infiltrate through our society, and the slogans, the way that the consumeristic world influences us far more than we realize. And what they're saying is that rather than it coming intentionally from books and studies, it's coming unknowingly at times. Is coming at us without us even realizing. 
So for us as Christians, it's a challenge because this society we're in can create a worldview that can be selfish, individualistic, consumeristic, entitled at times. And that can so easily creep into the church. It's challenging to me because some of this stuff is so easily the narrative that we create, the narrative that we read, the narrative that we live in. But what if it was never meant to be about me? What if I was never meant to be the star of the show? What if the best life was living for someone else, living for a being beyond myself, living for others around me? What does it mean for us to lead the Jesus way of servanthood, of sacrifice, of self-denial? In the New Testament, I've said this before, but in the New Testament, the word leader is mentioned three times. The word servant is mentioned over a hundred times. Leader is mentioned three times, but servant is mentioned over a hundred times. We can be easily leadership obsessed, but actually is there a call to serve one another? And any organization, is start, sorry, many organizations are starting to realize, many businesses and charities and organizations are starting to value in the ethos the culture that says, I want to prefer one another, I want to serve one another, I want to allow others to flourish at the sake of my own cost, because it's about the organization, it's about the team, it's not about me. The top teams, the top sports teams, you hear them in interviews after, they're saying, it's not really about my input, it's not about my points or my contributions, the main thing is the team did well, the team performed. Any good coach, any good manager, any good leader wants their individuals to put the team above themselves. Yesterday at the Six Nations, the stars of the show are those who are saying, actually, I did my job well for the sake of a team, for the sake of a nation. I absolutely love SES Who Dares Wins. Anyone else watch it? Four of us. That's really cool. Awesome. Well, I recommend you watching it tonight, in fact. So you haven't got an evening gathering tonight. Go home, watch it. But, yeah, or don't, you choose. But one of the things that the previous SAS soldiers constantly instilled to the new recruits is the fact that if you want to be successful as an SAS soldier, you've always got to put the good of a team, the good of others, got to be prepared to die for them, in fact, beyond your own contribution. Prepared to serve others at all costs, prepared to put everyone else's agenda, the team's agenda, the organization's focus above your own purpose, to serve and to allow the team and organization to flourish above your own individual needs. And I wonder, as we think about as a church where we're heading and this time of transition, I wonder if the, the desire of the prayer is that we step up into more roles of servant leadership and use our gifts for the greater good, saying, I've got these contributions, I've got these God-given gifts and talents, and my desire is for those to be used for the sake of this church and this city and for this nation. So why don't we have a look at scripture and see if what Jesus said 2,000 years ago has to say to us today. So we're in John 13. John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas. The son of Judas, Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Isn't that so often the case for us as Christians that we don't understand at the time what God is doing, but later we start to see the bigger picture and we're like, oh yeah. That's not what we're talking about today, but just a useful aside. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you should never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon replied, not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So the disciples are having this Passover meal together where they're celebrating the fact that the Israelites have been freed from slavery. That they're having this meal together and there's a hierarchy, a social hierarchy. And we know that happens in all sorts of cultures. An obvious one for us today is a wedding, right? And excuse my ignorance, but when you go to a wedding, there's like this obvious hierarchy of knowing where you are in the kind of pecking order. So when Adele and I got married a few years ago, we had a situation where about a week before our wedding, someone came up to us and said, hey guys, we're so excited about coming to your wedding. I'm so excited. I've got this huge hat, this red dress. I just can't decide what shoes to wear. She was really animated and excited. And Adele and I were chatting on the way home and I said, Adele, did you invite her? No. Did you invite her? No, no, I didn't invite her. And we talked about it. We thought, okay, a week before the wedding, we had like a, a buffet lunch, a fairly large wedding, and we felt that at this time, there was bigger fish to fry, we'd still allow her to come to the wedding. So we didn't, she turned up. And then we get to the wedding, and you know at a wedding, right, there's different levels of responsibility. So if you're like best man, or key part of the family, you get to hang out with the bride and groom a lot, perhaps a good photo and some time getting to know them. If you're an usher, yeah, you'd be part of some key photos. If you're a day guest, then you get to go around them, you get to meet them, perhaps a cheeky photo. Even guests, a best of photo from afar. You know, but there's different hierarchies. You know what I'm talking about, okay? You know kind of where you are in the pecking order. Well, when we got there, one of the things I was really excited about was before my wedding, there was a pub across the road from the church, and I was looking forward to me and some good friends, Mashes, having a pint of apple juice together. <laughs> That's a bit cheeky laughing. Um, so there we were having a drink together, and who's the person who comes and joins us? This lady who wasn't even invited. She comes and starts chatting with us. So there she is trying to chat with us, and one of my ushers, first usher duty, ushers her away, and she leaves and joins the wedding gathering. I'm not really this unkind, by the way. I'm actually quite a nice person. But then we get to the wedding reception and get out the wedding card, Del and I, first people at the wedding reception for obvious reasons, people are waiting to receive us. Who's the first person who comes and greets us? This lady who wasn't even invited. We're like, there's people who'd far rather see than you. So that's not true. Uh, Adele, I'm putting you in a bad light. I'm a bad person. You're not. You, you were very keen. But there's this social hierarchy, and the same is true for these disciples, because they knew that it wasn't appropriate for any of them to wash the feet. That was the kind of social norm. They knew that the Gentiles would be the ones who'd wash the feet. 
They weren't prepared to wash their feet. Peter is embarrassed that Jesus is open to washing the feet. The disciples are not happy about this. They're not prepared to wash the feet. Because the feet were covered in animal feces, covered in dust, covered in mess, because it was a busy, vibrant, dusty city, and the feet were the ugliest part of the body, the messiest part of the body. But he stops, and he stoops, and he gets down on his knees. This is God in human flesh in the most intimate and personal way. He serves them. He gets down and says, by his action, I want to serve you. I want to prefer you. I want to live for you. And then he says, I also want you to serve one another. As I have served you, now go and serve one another. Psychologists will tell you frequently that the happiest people are those who don't live for themselves, but those who live for others. The challenge of this passage to stop looking to our own needs, to stop looking to our own purposes and goals, but to live for those around us, to live for the greater good, to live for greater winds of the kingdom. You see, because this passage equally is a huge challenge because selfish ambition always leads to disunity. Selfish ambition always leads to disunity. That's a challenge here. There's a contrast between Judas and Jesus. Judas here is after his own gain, his own betterment, his own finances, his own pride, and it leads to a very dangerous and difficult and ultimately fatal path. And Jesus deliberately contrasts that with the ultimate modeling of sacrifice and servanthood. His actions were deceitfulness and selfishness of Judas and contrasted with the selflessness of Jesus. See, if our goal is to climb the ladder or to get a certain promotion or to get certain exam grades, then we'll be frequently disappointed. Or if our goal is for our children to keep up with the children up the road and go to all the clubs and go to all the things that's expected of them and perform and conform and be all they need to be from the society around us, the world around us, the pressure and expectation that's put upon them, then it's going to lead to stress and anxiety and depression. It's going to lead to challenge on ourselves. It's going to lead to challenge on our family. But there's real freedom when we say it's not about me. It was never about me. The pressure comes off. See, the Jesus narrative is different. We see elsewhere in Scripture that when we live for Jesus, there's contentment, there's inner peace, there's freedom from comparison, and we're secure in our God-given identity. This is the radical, upside-down, different-way kingdom to prefer one another and say, it's never about me. Challenging to serve one another, to prefer others above our own needs and agendas. So what does this mean for us as a church today on the 2nd of February? One of my favorite theologians, Clive Beach, who goes to 915, he said, so easily we can come to church and we can say, what can I get? What can I get from church? I want good teaching. I want good worship. I want this. I want that. I want my needs met. We're all guilty of me as much as the next person. But he says, perhaps the question as we arrive at church, when we're part of our community, when we come to the congregation, is that the question should be, what can I give? What God-given talents and contributions do I have for the greater good? Serving Jesus is the priority. The way of Jesus is always sacrifice and servanthood. often involves pain and challenge. It often is laying down ourselves for the sake of the wider benefit and blessing of the kingdom but it starts with us understanding what God has done for us in the passage we read Jesus said to his disciples do you understand what I've done for you 
Do we understand what he's done for us? And at this stage, Jesus hasn't died. At this stage, this is purely a foretaste because the washing of the feet was a model of the ultimate sacrifice, him dying for the sins of the world so that we could have eternal life. The ultimate sacrifice of him dying on a cross. This was a deliberate imitation of that. But do we really understand what this means for us? So like we really get this. But the God of the universe of limitless power and majesty and glory doesn't control us or manipulate us or overpower us. Instead, he chooses to serve us, to die for us, to lay down his life for us. And this isn't like a one-off act, a one-off good thing. This is his character revealed to us. The Gospel of John later says that God's glory is revealed on the cross. We learn that God's nature is for us, for our purposes. He's completely giving his life so that we would have life in all its fullness. To raise up and restore us. By him stooping down, he raises us up. If we really grasp this, we'd stop trying to grasp control. We'd stop trying to grasp our own needs and desires because we'd realize that our ultimate purpose, our ultimate fulfillment is when we are on our knees serving others. When we recognize that he's on his knees serving us, preferring us and giving everything for us. The God of the universe got down on his knees. He died on a cross and laid down everything for us. It's an up, down, upside down kingdom. It makes no sense. Because the way of the world counters that and says, what about me? What about my needs? But Jesus lays down everything for the disciples, lays down everything for the future church and says, go, do likewise. We've recently had our garden done. And if you're on social media and you're some sort of friend of me on social media, you'll know that I've been quite excited about this. And there's a picture, I think, oh, look, there's before, okay. Yeah, please pretend you care, that'd be really good. What, perhaps a wow would be nice. Oh, yeah, okay. And then after. Oh, thank you. Mic drop. Right, okay. But we are quite pleased, you know, it's the small things in life, but that's our garden transformation. And the people who have come to do it is an organization called Patel. And it's a Christian charity from Birmingham who are now based in Motherwell. And these guys are ex-offenders, prisoners, drug addicts. They've had all sorts of horrendous backgrounds. One of them was an ex-pro footballer, and now he is, he, he was, sorry, a football ultra and hooligan. And one of them lived in a bin for three years. I'm not quite sure how he did that, but he did. Tragic stories and amazing testimonies of God's goodness in their lives. But they turn up, and they're there with the 80s worship music pumping out full blast. I quite like it, neighbors not so keen, okay? Darling Czech, love her, but the neighbors aren't kind of so up on Darling Czech. But there we are, listening to worship music, and they're there with smiles on their face, just loving every moment. And anyone who comes within 100 meters of our garden will hear about Jesus. So the postman's just there trying to post a letter, and he grabs them, and these guys grab them, and just tell them about Jesus. These guys are just trying to post a letter in a hurry, but they have to hear the gospel. And the way they act and the way they serve up, it's just remarkable. They constantly go above and beyond. They've gone well over the amount of days they agreed because they were just determined to serve us well, to do an excellent job. They're always happy to do what we ask of them. They're always happy to just make sure that they've done a really excellent job. And what you realize is that it's not for money. It can't be for money because they're not actually getting paid. We give money to the charity, but they're there just to serve and get the board and rent to the house. But they realize that Jesus has changed their life from the inside out, that he's taken them from the lowest point in society and raised them up. 
It's changed their hearts. It's changed their lives. It's helped them. And therefore, they're like, I want to give everything for the greater good. There's so much joy and contentment, so clear servant hearts within them. They're just desperate to build the kingdom, desperate to give everything because they realize that he's swooped them up and turned their lives around and offered them eternal life. You see, when Jesus really changes our hearts, we realize that it's never about us and we're at our fullest at serving others. When he changes our hearts and desires and says, serve me no matter what the cost, we realize we're at the fullest and most complete when we give everything for him. One of the reasons we harp on about communities at this church is because we recognize that actually we're made to serve one another. We're made to serve others in the city. We're made to serve others beyond this church. You see, the cross is both a way to salvation, but it's also the way to community. We can only know and understand community through how we live and serve and love one another. What does it mean for us today to consider how we help those in our city who don't know Jesus through setting up a community or through an outward-looking community? What does it mean for us to use our God-given gifts and talents to be part of a team in this church, to welcome others, to serve others, to say, we are going to be the most welcoming church? How do we serve those in our student halls with Jesus' love and saying, I prefer them, I want them to know God's love through how I lay down my life for them? You'll know that we've got lunch after, we've got a church meeting, but surely our desire, my desire, your desire has to be that we want to serve Jesus. We want to serve one another and serve the city through that meeting. Surely every decision we make, every prayer we pray has to be about how can we see God's kingdom grow? How can we see his kingdom advance? How can we prefer those sitting to right and left of me and prefer the needs of Jesus well above my own and say, ultimately, this church is built on Jesus and it will be for him that we stand and serve. We're here to serve the city. We're here to serve others. The church is known as the only organization that doesn't exist for its members. So often the church can have this reputation across society of being known for what it takes and not what it gives. Let's be known across this city and nation of what we give and how we generously give away our lives, our gifts, our money, our talents. How does it look for each and every one of us to say, this is me, I'm going to be a humble, godly, sacrificial, selfless lady. I'm going to love the broken. I'm going to feed the needy. I'm going to care for the vulnerable and isolated. I'm going to welcome those who are on the fringes of society. The Jesus way is to give everything up and say, I will lay down everything I have, every asset, every money, every value, everything I've got, and say, the best life is giving it over to you. As a church, we believe in the next few years we'll see church plants and new communities and all sorts of exciting things within his timing and will. But it will start with us saying it's not about the glory or anything other than serving those beyond these church walls who don't know God's love yet. Our desire as a church is to love Jesus, to be family and love this city. We follow him by saying, I want to know that you served me, that you lived and died and rose again for me. And you modeled the sacrificial way. And I want to give everything back to serve you. To be family, to really understand and live as family, we have to prefer those around us and say, it's not about my gain. It's not about my role or purpose. It's about the greater good. And to love this city, we get down on our knees. We stoop below as Jesus stooped for us. And we say, for the sake of those who don't know the love of God, for the sake of those who are hurting and broken and messed up, for the sake of those who are vulnerable and isolated, we will give everything we have. 
guys, this is challenging. This is exciting. This is the Jesus way. Let me pray for us. Lord, for those of us who are perhaps new to the church or yeah, just coming to know you this morning, perhaps even wrestling with you, I pray that above and beyond anything I've said, they will know that you loved them so much. That not only did you come down to show a life of service, but you lived and died and rose again for each and every one of us. Help us now just begin to grasp that incredible gift of love, that gift of sacrifice. Holy Spirit, encourage us with that. But as we once again hear from your word, we pray that we would celebrate where this is being modeled, celebrate where this is being embodied, but also say, I'm in Jesus. I want to give everything I've got every skill, every talent, every penny to serve your purposes, Lord. Forgive me when it's become about Andy Harding. Forgive us when it's become about individuals. But help us be known for our selfless love and sacrifice. Give us new dreams. Give us new desires and prayers and hopes and passions. Instill our faith so that we would really love and impact this city and this nation more than ever before. Holy Spirit, come, we pray. Amen.